everybody a few minutes to come on in. And uh, we're on chapter 46 of this great book by Anna Maria and uh, Manalo. And uh, what a great book. You know, it's got a little bit of everything. We're talking, you know, about World War II Germany and uh, people trying to survive in World War II Germany. And, uh, you know, it's from a different perspective because this family that we're talking about, we're, Ger we're Germans, right? They're not Jewish, they're Germans. They did, however, help a uh, Jewish little girl. So, I mean, it's an interesting story from that perspective. So uh, we've got a little bit of that in there, plus, you know, the woods that she's running through and, and the, that her father's escaping through are haunted. So we got a little, you know, we got some ghost story going on in here, too. Just a reminder that I cannot be in the chat room because I have to read this stuff. I'm reading it off a PDF. And so you can chat away and I'll check periodically. But what happens is that I'm reading off a PDF and I'm blind as a bat. So I have to have it enlarged quite a bit. Okay. Anyway, my name is Charlotte. Welcome. California Haunts Radio on Sunday. This is our reading Sunday where we read a book that's paranormal themed. And mostly true stories is what we're trying to read. And so we have a really great one with, 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 with The Way Through the Woods. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. You can find us at www.californiahaunts.org. Or if you find it that you want to visit the radio site instead, that's californiahauntsradio.com. Uh, if you're watching from YouTube today, uh, please, and you haven't subscribed yet, please subscribe. And that's a, that, that is, uh, there, there's a little ghost down in the bright, bottom right-hand corner of the camera, you know, the, the camera here, and just click on that. That'll make you a subscriber. If you have trouble finding us on YouTube, visit CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com and click on any of the videos there. I'm going to have that site updated tonight and tomorrow, so everything's up to date. I got behind a little bit because I wasn't feeling well. And you click on a video, and it'll take you directly into YouTube so you can see all our videos. We've got over two, more than 200 videos on the YouTube site. And we're also starting up our TikTok, so we should have a TikTok by the end of the week, and that's going to be different for us to, to do a California Haunts Radio TikTok. We have done regular California Haunts TikToks, but not California Haunts Radio TikTok yet. So I'm not even going to tell you who the featured guest will be for that. You're just going to have to come check it out, and I'll let you know when the TikTok's up and running. So I want to thank you guys for coming, and I appreciate it. Uh, again, uh, the ticker at the bottom, doesn't <laughs> it means a lot to us in that California Haunts is a nonprofit organization, and I run it all out of pocket myself. So all the bills that get paid uh, comes out of my pocket, whether it's the internet, uh, the YouTube, the, the not YouTube, but the StreamYard service, you know, my electricity, obviously, the mics, the the computers, everything. So if something breaks, excuse me, it comes out of my pocket. So any donation you could help with would be great because I want to keep this show on the air. We've been on the air for almost two years, and uh, you guys have done a great job so far to keep us on the air, and I really appreciate it, but we, we still always need more and more and more to do this because, you know, we want to keep these great guests coming and have these Sunday readings. So uh, you could do that at paypal.me at California Haunts, or you can do that if you're uncomfortable with PayPal. You can go to Venmo, just type in California Haunts, and voila, there we are, okay? It's just it's that easy. But, it, you know, in, in any little bit you could donate, I really appreciate it because I, I am trying to keep this thing going because we've got a good thing going, you know, our... And I want to thank you guys because our downloads have gone up tremendously. You know, every at the end of the show, I always ask you to share it with five people, whether you like them or not, to get the word out about our show. And you've been doing that. And, you know, it needs to be done more and more and more because I, I really, you know, am impressed because we, went, we we doubled our downloads for our podcast last month. So that was tremendous. And we went up tremendously on YouTube with, with views. And I'm really 
impressed with all that. So please keep that up. Please keep that up. I think we're, uh, we have one guy that came on our show to watch it and said that, you know, we have good background, we have good guests and all this, but YouTube shows us no love. And that's true. YouTube does show us no love with their, with their rhythms. So hopefully if you guys can start watching us more and stuff, we will get more love from YouTube and, and get our name out there and whatnot. Okay. Anyway, without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and start the book. I know there's people reading. I got one person in the room right now, but I know there's going to be a lot more coming in. It's always a surprise after the shows to check out to see who was watching, you know, where they were watching from. So like I said, I won't be available to chat straight off or, or read your chat messages because I am reading off a PDF and I have the whole screen full of my PDF. I know the camera's working, everything's working out. So um, I'm just going to go to the PDF and start reading. We're in chapter 46 now. We'll read for about an hour more on this book, and then we'll continue next weekend. Okay, so here we go. And I want to say something about the author. The author of this book is very, very sweet. She's a she's a, a frequent guest on our show, Anna Maria Manalo. She's a wonderful person, wonderful soul. So I hope you enjoy this book as much as I do. Chapter 46. Excuse me for a second. I have allergies too. Krista dips her head under the tub's warmth, a bar of soap in one hand. Mila's tender hands, plump and soft, rub a cloth on her back, soapy and sudsy. Nearby, a simple dress hangs on a hanger, waiting for Krista. Mila is humming a song, the same one Krista was singing the day they were gardening, and Mila disappeared, sensing she was endangering her benefactors. Krista hums along and finally sings the tune, which makes Mila smile and giggle. Krista feels comforted by the warmth of the house, its tenants, and the joy of finding Mila. She hopes it is a matter of time before she finds their parents as well. In the reverie, Krista finds herself nodding off, watching, as if in a dream, the face of Mila, <coughs> seeing as my allergies, as she hums and washes her hair. <coughs> okay. Soon, they are done, and Krista emerges from the bath, Mila helping her wrap herself in the thick towel. A timid knock. Then Holzer's brown face appears, averting his eyes in shyness. Dinner's ready. Mila squeals with delight and almost forgets Krista, who stands wrapped in a towel barefooted. Oops, Mila laughs. She grabs a pair of pink slippers and plops them by, by Krista, Krista's side as she impishly joins the boy at the threshold. See you at dinner. Krista nods, slipping her swollen and blistered feet into the soft slippers. She wonders how she will walk down the stairs, but she remembers falling how Mila becomes forgetful when food presents itself. She chuckles. As she exits the bathroom, she is grateful Holster stands by, waiting to assist her down the stairs. A roasted chicken, small potatoes and butter, and a medley of carrots and asparagus sit on the trestle table. Edgar pours milk from the cows, the cream still on top, in several glasses. He hands one to Mila, then Krista as she sits. Hannah brings out a small cake with buttercream frosting and places it nearby on the sideboard. It makes Krista drool. If she has not seen such lavishness since she left Frau Diestertrossi's home months ago. This one, she thinks, is better, as it is all made with loving hands instead of a local bakery. The milk from the cows just yards away in the barn. She is seated next to Mila, facing the open window, with a view of the cliff she was perched on just a few days ago. Just like old times in their village house. The pastoral scene of the hens safely in their, in their shed for the night. The sheep standing idly. And the cows in the barn. 
makes the room feel so serene. They pass the dishes around, all content with the world. The self-created family passes the evening reading stories from books out loud. No Nazi books about Hitler, but classics from far-off Denmark and Italian books with fancy pictures. Mila reads the German fairy tales in her, sing in her sing-song voice as Krista marvels how well she can read. Hannah plays the violin later on as Mila makes tea. The music and the tea lull Krista, and before she knows it, her head is nodding, beckoned by much-needed sleep. Mila nudges Krista with wakefulness as the embers from the fireplace begin to take hold, and Holzer stands to turn on the lamps for Hannah to better see her notes from the music stand. Edgar claps his hands, his British accent resonating as he asks for an encore. Laughter. Mila gives Hannah a peck on the cheek as Krista thanks her host for the hospitality. Mila ascends the stairs with Krista, whose hike through the forest has taken a toll on her young feet. Krista makes it up to the top step, almost faltering into Mila's supportive embrace. The girl escorts her to a small but comfortable room with a simple dresser, a nightstand, and a bed with a handmade coverlet. The sounds of cicadas chorus through the open window, framing the view beyond of the framing the view beyond the forest that Krista made her approach from. Mila slides off the small down quilted slippers she gave Krista, exposing her now bleeding feet. The warm bath temporarily assuaged the pain, but several weeks of walking in the boots, which were meant for special occasions, not rough terrain, show on the teenager's feet. Mila stands and returns to the bathroom. She notes Mila has not changed, although she appears happier and more buoyant, almost too carefree. Krista worries about their peace and joy. That sorry, Krista worries that their peace and joy will be short-lived. But the little family seems very calm on their little farm. Krista makes a note to ask the next day why Edgar and Holzer were loading the, the horse cart when she was greeted unexpectedly by Mila. It appeared that they were ready for a trip and taking provisions. Mila returns with a warm bowl of sudsy water and a clean towel. Kneeling before Krista, she washes her feet, then opens a creamy ointment, which she applies to Krista's injured feet. Krista marvels at Mila's skill, noting how the girl expertly wraps both of her feet in bandages and secures them so that they are snug. And how am I supposed to get around now that they're all wrapped up, Missy? Krista's tone is playful. Mila looks back at Krista from where she kneels. You're not going anywhere, not without our help. Aren't we going to look for my parents? Your parents? Behind the bed, a breeze blows the curtains in from the open window. Mila eyes her with doleful eyes. Not until your feet are well. A pause. Then Mila turns away, holding Krista's newly mended uniform and begins humming a song that sounds so familiar to Krista that it lulls her into a deep sleep. 47. The fire is larger than horse wanted but there is a distinct chill in the nighttime air after the rain. Phoebe sits nearby watching. The two shared several fish, now expertly speared by a horse, and charted the fire. Earlier in the darkness, beyond the small opening in the forest, horse saw a small path, which appeared to lead towards the tunnel and the train tracks above, set on a hill. In the dimming light, horse thought the tunnel was still too far for, hor for horse to assess if it was some type of underground bunker or storage for armaments. God, my allergies are horrible. He doesn't want to be caught there, surprising a troop of soldiers from either the Reich or the Red Army. He wonders if the path has been used recently and makes a mental note to examine it before he emerges onto it. It should tell him if the tunnel is in use. Horse started 
well away from the path and camped past a, a, a copse of trees and, and undergrowth. So he was hidden not just from the elements, but from anyone who may pass the path. There he cooked the fish in the open fire and shared it with the dog. Now done and sated by the light of the crackling fire, he calls to Phoebe, who comes over, head down in submission. He pets the shepherd, who appears healthier now, her coat glinting in the moonlight. He digs in his pocket for her tag, which she dropped earlier when, the, when she ran, and, and reattaches it to the collar. The collar is made of leather, matted with dirt and hair. On the spur of the moment, he decides to remove it from the shepherd's neck. Phoebe willingly lets her new master remove it, trusting him and licking his face as he stands to wash in the stream. The metal gleams as horse washes the collar, now noting the collar is also matted with blood. He washes it away, wipes the collar with his shirt, and lets it dry on a rock by the stream. Phoebe watches horse return to, to her side and and inspect her fur by the firelight, noting any scratches or any past injuries. He brings out some tincture of iodine in anticipation of open sores or injuries. Horse sees a gash on her side as he parts her fur to comb it with his hands. It appears healed, and the fur is obliterated any sign of injury. Phoebe licks her master's hands in gratitude as Horse continues to comb her fur with his fingers. Then Phoebe's ears perk up, hearing what Horse has to wait to hear. Phoebe stands. Another train is coming. This one is not as fast. And the chug-chug-chug of the wheels gives away its laboring movements as it winds it, as it wends its way on the tracks. Is it slowing? Horse glances at the fire and swiftly covers it with dirt to obscure his position lest the train stop. He has to determine if there are dining cars, usually well-lit from within, which would show him Germans in uniform dining at leisure or Russians celebrating a takeover. He has no one to get news from as far as the status of the war. Horace grabs his messenger bag and darts towards the sound of the train whistle. The path, strewn with rocks and tree limbs, has obviously not been used for some time. That is good. Under cover of darkness, they walk carefully on the path, Phoebe leading the way. The path wends its way into the deep forest. Horse walks by the moonlight and the stars. But several minutes into the walk, the trees become dense, the branches obscuring any light provided by the sky. Horse pauses, and Phoebe turns to avoid his decision. A sense of desolation and unexplained malice assails him. It tastes like copper in his mouth, and skews the scent of sulfur. Horse feels very alone and becomes sensitive to keening a sound. As if someone or some animal is crying, a very low tone, but unmistakable. He surveys the, impen he, he surveys the, the darkness, the path now hidden ahead. Behind him, in the distance, where he originated, there was a low light from where the trees allowed the sky to light the way. Somehow, where he stands now appears more remote, which doesn't make sense to Horst, as the tracks are closer now and thus closer to civilization. Hopefully, one that would welcome him, though he remains unsure. But he is alone with his thoughts, a creeping, gnawing fear, and a shepherd who is awaiting him faithfully. The keening continues. Seized by an internal alarm, Horst turns back walking down with resolve to return to his campsite where he, where he snuffed the fire. Horst ignores another train whistle, this time the chugging going faster to indicate that it is obviously running full speed towards a destination going south. As the sound of the chugging recedes in the depths of the forest, Horst finds a light in the trees, which, upon inspection, are the embers from his fire. The fear, malice, and despair within his psyche lessen with every step. He wonders whether his subconscious or something outside of him 
is somehow warning him that the path was not to be taken. Still quaking somewhat from the, from the inexplicable fear, he battles with indecision as to whether he can risk making another, making another fire. The darkness makes him want light. He makes a new fire. The light and warmth lessen the sense of menace and isolation. Horse listens for any sounds. He can no longer hear Keeney. As he rolls his messenger bag under his head near the fire, he calls it a night and resolves to discover by daylight, with a clear head and the clarity of the sun, why the path filled him with terror. Yet, it was terror. Yet, it was terror. Yes, it was terror upon introspection. A wave of fear that almost left him paralyzed. Phoebe walks around in circles and then, pre and then presses her back to him, further warming horse and excuses an aura of comfort and safety. He sleeps. I'm rolling up. Chapter 48. Krista is stunned. Mila explains she is sure her parents are both dead. Murdered. She and Edgar, of course, will escort her, Mila says, in a matter-of-fact way, to the train platform with Krista dressed in her green dress. The Russians are not kind to Nazi youth, so they burn her uniform. The Russians leave the ordinary citizens alone, particularly the disabled, and, of course, are receptive to their allies like the British. Edgar tells Krista she can ride the train all the way north to the army installation at, at Budenjin, where the Frau told her her father was stationed, under duress. But Mila would not, or could not, go with her. Why? Krista thinks she misunderstands. But Mila explains and explains again that she has to stay or possibly be caught by any remaining German soldiers who are still killing any Jews or non-Aryans, when they can. She fears the disability so clear in her eyes will risk her life once again. Finally, Krista understands and feels guilty for being insensitive to Mila's plight. After the warmth and relative safety of the farm, the company of people who are also outcasts, as she sees herself to be, Krista finds herself alone in her quest again. As she sits in a wooden horse cart that she, that she saw being loaded by, by Holster a few days ago, she feels trepidation of what lies ahead. She watches the horse's head bob to and fro as she clops down the dusty lane. Edgar sitting right behind it, at the reins, and Mila facing her in the wagon amongst the produce. Krista is torn. If she stays, she will never reach her father or find out if her mother is still alive. If she goes, she will lose Mila. She wants them all together, but now she must brave it again, alone. Why must it be this way? During the ride, Krista selfishly begs Mila to reconsider. She knows now what she needs to do in order for them to thrive in the woods. Mila has good boots on, and so does she, a pair that fits her perfectly. Again, just like the handsome house given to them by the wreck, the clothes and shoes were from the previous tenants of the farm, who seemed to have abandoned the animals in their haste to run. Krista recounts her odyssey to Mila, how she ate berries, all types of leaves, particularly clover, which is bitter to the taste, but very edible. Mila keeps shaking her head no. Then, for the rest of the ride to the station, Mila hums a tune that Agatha used to sing as she embroidered. Don't you miss Agatha, Mila? Mila gives Krista a look that gives away the depth of her loss, the deep anguish that comes almost like a blow to her gut. Over and over again, until she can no longer stand. The car rolls on, straight to their fate. I said car, I meant card. Sorry, guys. 49. The sun stands bright. 
almost at the zenith by the time Horst refastens Phoebe's collar and gives the dog a quick rundown. Packed and packed and books and boots cushioned with leaves to ease his feet, he once again enters the path carrying his spear. The forest darkens as Horst delves delves down the winding path. Yards later, Horst looks back from where he came and again notes the discernible difference in light. The bright sun now, but a halo in the distance between trees. Today it is quieter as Horst listens to the sounds of trains passing. He wonders if it is a Sunday, when only a few trains would pass at this hour. He arrives shortly at where he stopped the night before to turn back, fear alarming his senses, the sound of keening heralding doom. This time, undeterred by fatigue and braved by the bright sun past the shade, Horst moves forth, watching his step. He wonders if the sense of fear might be an internal caution to wash for minds. He looks down, examining the ground as he goes. Phoebe sniffs the ground as if in mimic, as if mimicking her master, looking up to check on Horst and then moving forward again. Deeper into the path, vegetation takes over as the ground makes way for dead leaves and trees that appear to creep. Large roots cover the ground and make passing difficult. Horse senses in the darkness, which is again gaining as he moves forward, something ominous. This time, he has determined to reach the tunnel to investigate. He hopes that up close he can see better if the passing trains carry passengers without soldiers or one that carries supplies where he and Phoebe can ride undercover. Suddenly, Horst hears the unmistakable sound of a train blasting its way just a few yards from his position. Surprised at its closeness, he pauses to take in what is ahead. The vines of trees cover the walls of the tunnel that supports the tracks. As, as he gingerly approaches, he sees he is a few yards from what appears to be the right arch of the tunnel's mouth. The shepherd stops, seeming to listen to the approaching train and gazing at Horst. Horst surveys the high arch as he slowly moves towards the mouth of the deep tunnel. A light showing the way out the other end gives him more confidence. As the train approaches from above him, Horst backs away to gain a view of the passing train. It slows as Horst signals the dog with a finger to remain silent. Castle cars or cattle cars, <laughs> castle cars, cattle cars pass one one after the other. The wheels screeching as it chugs. One black car after another with a small barred window. Then the train slows. Suddenly, a car slides open, and a young girl in her teens, blonde, swiftly jumps out followed by another with flowing dark hair, a keening, a thud. Horse stands through to the spot, just a few feet from where the blonde girl landed. Then the other girl, a woman, then the other girl, a woman hanging from a tree, her neck broken, her, her eyes blazing as she chokes. Then she stiffens in a still. Horse hears Phoebe going crazy, barking. Horse quickly approaches the blonde girl lying on the ground, but blood quickly pulls from her head, her eyes shut. Horse leaps back in horror. It is Mila. The train above him gains momentum. The cattle car slams shut. It moves, screeching, heading north. Mila lies motionless, her body broken in a blue dress rapidly soaking in blood. The keening comes again, but it comes from none other than Horse's lips, a cry of loss and horror. Chapter 50 Krista emerges back from the cart. Oh, I'm sorry. Krista emerges from the back of the cart. Mila right at her heels. She finally convinced Mila to go, and Edgar looks on quietly, unable to protest. Mila is, after all, like a sister to Krista. 
Mila extends both her hands to hug Edgar, who hugs her back, his back stiff. He is without emotion, like a soldier doing his duty, which he is. The station is busy, but in the corner of her eye, Krista spots a group of German soldiers hurriedly shuffling some woman into a train car without windows. The woman, some women, I'm sorry, the women look exhausted. The women look exhausted, emaciated even, and are all wearing the same ill-fitting pajamas, or so it appears. Striped gray with white pajamas, like prisoners. Krista puzzles over this, as she knows the Russians are gaining on Germany. To what extent, she does not know. Edgar quickly ushers her into a, pass into a passenger car. Identification as a Nazi youth mentor clutched in her, her left hand, just in case her pack on, just in case her pack on her right. Krista climbs the steps on the train and turns to reach down for Mila. Suddenly a whistle, heralding the train's imminent departure, makes Edgar turn away. Then he is gone. Krista looks right and left, searching. Mila has disappeared. The train yanks, pushes, and then it is slowly, but, per but perceptibly moving. Krista steps down, trying to lo locate Mila. Mila, Mila. The train gains momentum and she feels an arm reach down for her, pulling her like a ragdoll into the train. Here, in German. A German soldier has her in his arms, his kind face smiling with congeniality as he protects her from the open door. Krista, taken aback, wordlessly steps in, still looking back out the door for Mila. There's no one out there, Fraulein. The soldier tips his hat, walks down the train corridor, and Krista follows, her identity papers in one hand. She reaches for the soldier, a man in his early 20s, who appears very kind. A girl of 14 was with me. Blonde hair, blue. The soldier stops and turns, taken aback. Except for an elderly man and his wife, who took the other train, there was no one There was no one on the platform but you, Fraulein. Surely she's now here in the car. Krista dashes past the soldier, surveying and darting from one cabin to the next, opening it. Then the next, the consternation of the passengers inside. A conductor in uniform, a swastika on his lapel, blocks her way as the soldier behind her gives chase. Please stop, Fraulein. The conductor has both hands raised to block her. She was with me on the platform. The conductor says the soldier eyes the soldier behind Krista. Your ticket, please. Krista shows him her papers as a Nazi youth te teacher. The conductor's face softens. He hands it back to her. The soldier steps in. She was alone and was getting a ticket, but... The conductor dismissively waves a hand. Not a problem. You can share a cabin at the end. I don't see those papers. I didn't see those papers. There may be Russians embarking at the next stop. With that, the, sh the soldier uh, ushers Krista into an empty cabin, shuts the door, and removes his uniform, revealing a civilian shirt. The train platform sits empty, the train receding into the distance. The sound of its motor fades as it moves away. Behind the station, an abandoned horse cart Sits without a horse. Bales of hay long gone. The fruit box is empty. Where Edgar sat, dry blood stains the seat and the ground below. On one side, more dried blood on the ground where it pooled. It appears it dried in the sun several months ago. Wow. That's a twist. Nice job, Anna. Chapter 51. Mila couldn't breathe inside the cattle car. Summer's undulating heat stifled her as she clambered past the emaciated women, dirty in their pajamas. A soldier had forced her with a rifle, laughing into the car. She had been courageous enough to go with Edgar and Holzer to the market, 
stopping at the train station to sell the rest of the fruit to passengers. Now she was squeezed in with the woman, with the women who appeared to be in shock, too weak to cry. She clambered over the bodies of women in pajamas, reaching for the door, which was secured with a latch. The train gained momentum. A woman in rags with long, dark hair sat by the door. She reached for the latch. She was stronger than Mila, despite her emaciated condition. Wearing what appeared to be a dog collar, the latch gave, and the sliding door made of wood slowly slid open. Who would have known that anyone would have spotted her eyes and Holzer's irregular frame as they stood with the remaining crates of peaches? Edgar had stood nearby and watched for, for soldiers, when suddenly they appeared with a mass of concentration camp survivors attempting to load an entire contingent into a filthy cattle car. Edgar had signaled to the two teens to pick up the crate to depart when the worst had happened. He had miscalculated. Certainly, he thought, the Russians were freeing the camp's survivors. Maybe they have not reached their village. He turned and bolted for the cart, reaching for it when a few shots rang out. He reached up to grab the reins from the horse and sat, but everything went black. He heard fireworks and wondered as he faded what the party was about. Holser was near the wagon. His blood, his blood spraying all over the side of the cart. German soldiers descended on the fruit taking the remains of the produce and unharnessing the horse. They got the horse free, and one let it join another soldier nearby, who beamed at their new ride. The soldier continued beaming and expected the cart, as his comrades left, eager to eat the fruit. As people eagerly ascended to take the remaining vegetables from the back of the cart, the young soldier surveyed the area. Slowly, he reached for the deserted bridle, placing it over his head with one deft movement. He pulled his uniform shirt off, exposing a white undershirt. He pulled the cart away as the people left. 52. Horst awakens. It is twilight. He must have fainted, he surmises. Horst looks at the body above him. The long telltale hair. She was brunette. Rags of clothing and stripes of gray and what looked like and what looked to be white a long time ago hang tattered with molding. A collar of what appears to be as leather like the dog's, is strapped to her neck. The odd article of clothing seems to have caught on a branch, strangling her as she, as she volleyed from, down from the train. A failed escape. If she had fallen to the ground, she would have been killed anyway, next to Mila. Was it Mila? Is he dreaming? It was just a few hours ago. Horst gingerly approaches the body, already in a state of advanced decomposition. Yes, it is real. Blonde hair with long bangs obscure the eyes. The body is mostly skeletal. Horse moves away, vomiting, as flies fly around the body. Phoebe, head down, walks towards the body and pulls something from it. A small notebook, soiled and torn. Horse looks up, breathing with one hand over his nose as he watches the dog approach him. Phoebe puts it down, wagging her tail. A photo, wet and muddy, falls out. A young boy stands in front of the cart. Horse picks it up, examines it, he drops it. He puts his hands on the side of his head, as if to screen out what he's seeing, and cries. He gathers leaves, twigs, anything he can find. He covers Mila's body with them, like a parrot tucking a child in for the night. He sobs through it all, looking up once, once in a while to note where the woman's body is hanging above him. He doesn't want her to fall on him. He shivers and sobs as he works, until finally Mila is part of the trees in the forest forever in slumber, 
Then, with the deepness of the tunnel still ahead, he points the dog in the direction of the old camp, where once again he seeks the refuge of, of familiarity, a fire, some fish, and a place to sleep next to Phoebe. A handkerchief lies on the ground, the embroidered flower lending a hint of the sweetness of the life that is now extinguished. Then the breeze blows, blowing the leaves and the handkerchief to rest atop Mila's covered body. Fifty-three. Krista awakens to the shrill sound of the train's brake screeching. She sits up and surveys the small cabin where the young German soldier has changed into a shirt and tie. No uniform. He is casually looking out the window like any other passenger as the train slows at the platform. She looks, she, she looks inquiringly at him. He smiles. Oberweed? I'm halfway there. To where? Krista doesn't want to divulge her ultimate destination to a stranger. Instead, she stands and prepares to leave. Thank you for your kindness. I must go. Krista exits the cabin and almost runs into two young Russian soldiers. She slips past without comment, but one grabs her arm. Anyone in there with you? Thinking quickly, Krista replies, My boyfriend, but I'm leaving him. The two soldiers glance at each other and chuckle. One taps his head with a grin. They walk on. Krista turns away, starting past the other passengers with a grin. It worked. Out on the platform, a few armed Russian soldiers are watching a group of passengers enter the train. Krista moves quickly, pretending she is late. She quickly surveys the area. Blonde girls, tall, handsome men, vendors, and vegetable sellers. No sight of Mila or Edgar. No Holzer. Krista's face crumples almost in tears. Perhaps Mila never meant to be on the train with her, and she has to accept that. Krista crosses the street behind the station and notes the village signs, north. She steps onto a narrow lane and begins walking in earnest. Then she realizes she is lost. Krista glances at the train station, crosses again, and returns to the side of the station. The tracks wind their way into the forest. A signpost shows several directions. One points to Eisenach. She turns and follows, going parallel to the tracks. She digs into her pockets, searching. She looks down at the photograph of Mila and her at the birthday party. She trudges on. The tracks went through, went through the deep forest, the undergrowth preventing Krista from walking too fast. She struggles over some vines, almost falling. She was replenished and restocked by Mila's new family and feels a modicum of comfort knowing her pack holds nuts, cheese, sausages, and a cake. Fresh rolls fill, filled the basket given to her by the Frau, tucked in with a waxen cheesecloth to protect it from the elements. The water in a bottle now makes the pack heavier. Nightfall is heralded by calling crows, signaling a field where she can perhaps rest. Sure enough, as she turns the bend following her track, following the tracks, a train chugs in the distance adjacent to an open field where rows of corn grow in abundance. The train goes faster as the engine gains uphill and is soon receding in the distance. Krista looks behind her as another train, this one headed, headed in the direction she wants, due north, marches its way towards her. Krista considers a ride again, but the station is at least half a mile away. Her blistered feet are not completely healed. As the northbound train passes her, it appears to be slowing down, but it only holds cattle cars. She moves away and watches it as it ambles past, lights now on in the growing dusk. Then the train slows perceptibly, parallel to the rows of corn. Krista walks faster, hoping she can hazard another ride, perhaps not in the comfort of passenger cabin. 
but at least the cattle car would allow her feet and legs some rest and more ground cover in less time. She regrets stepping off the other one for fear of being questioned, but it was moot. She approaches the cattle car, then another, searching for one that may be open in it or ajar. She will need to reach for the handle and climb two steps to enter it. It slows. Then the hairs on Krista's head begin to tingle. Deep in her stomach, something is dreadfully wrong. Dead silence. No crow's caw, no wind, no sounds in the field, and no murmurs of people. She pauses now. She pauses. Now, just a few feet from a car, whose door appears ajar. From one of the barred windows, a keening sound. She smells it before she sees it. Carried by a breeze that blows from the train. Sick to her stomach, she backs away. Her eyes glue to the car. She smells decay. Putrefication and human loneliness like discarded rag. Then she hears the crying, the wailing, and the sound of fear from within. She runs. In the distance, she spots a valley. Then, a tunnel. She bolts for it, dropping her basket of rolls in her haste to make as much distance as she can from what she gleaned as an, as an abattoir within the train cars. The basket lies on the ground. The cheesecloth parted as it fell. Revealing the rolls, the fabric itself is molded and dusty. Flies, flies fly around the rolls, covering them. Where there are spots open, mold grows and maggots crawl. Krista dashes back to retrieve it and sees. It has only been a day or two since she received it from the kindly British farmer, Edgar. Krista recoils in horror. She drops the basket and continues running, confused, terrified, bewildered. 54. Forrest enters the tunnel with his lantern, shivers, and takes in his surroundings. Water drips from the dark ceiling, mildew on the walls, and pools stagnant on the ground. He swings the lamp around to check the size of the tunnel. A pair of eyes look back at him, ahead. Horse gas. It is Phoebe. Horse signals the dog to keep going. He gingerly walks by the lantern light, willing himself to keep going lest he be tempted to turn back and confront the bodies of Mila and the woman, and, and the woman hanging from the tree. This time, he is going to go through, no matter how dark it becomes, and see what's on the other end. The dog pauses to await Horst, ever so faithful. Horst mutters soothingly in German, a practice he's been following to calm both himself and the dog. It is more for himself, actually. Halfway in, Horst realizes that the tunnel is deeper than he thought. He pauses once again to illuminate his surroundings, watching for any doors that might lead to an inner room where a soldier or two might be stationed. All that meets him are frogs and a vole or two, scampering around from the unwelcome light of his lantern. The chorus of frogs reaches a crescendo as he gets closer to the, mud, to the midpoint and then begins to fade behind him. Then, ahead, where the tunnel ends, a light. Riveted to the light, Horse shuts off his lantern, plummeting him in the darkness. Phoebe howls and lets out a bark. The light at the end moves, then goes dark. Phoebe dashes forward, barking. Horse blindly follows. He trips. He lands on his chin, sending stars to his eyes. Phoebe! The dog pauses, wagging its tail. The light comes on. A man leans down, petting the dog. He looks up. Horse stands, recognizing a familiar face. It's none other than the village-bred man's son, Hoseth. For Schneider? Horse approaches, rubbing a knee, as Hoseth darts over, turning his lantern on. Dirt, dried blood, mud. His shirt is partly torn. His beard applies unkempt, oily. Hoseth's blonde hair is, is a study in, in whorls of punctuated by twigs. Horse studies Hoseth with amazement. 
by the lantern light. The men reach each other and hug. Hosef is aged. I escaped. Horse mentally put, puts two and two together as he stares down at the man's German-issued boots, the open shirt collar of a sergeant. The Russians, you must get rid of that uniform. Hosef nods solemnly. Hosef wearily removes the shirt, exposing a white undershirt. The man appears spent and older. Horse escorts him towards the edge of the tunnel, opening his flask of water. They sit. I still have the bread cart outside. Horse nods. He looks relieved. Horse opens the package of fish he dried and offers it. He starts laughing with relief. You still have the bread cart? He said, Horse says in disbelief. Hosef wolfs down the dried fish. Yes, he nods vigorously. Oops. And all I have is fish. The answer. Oh, I'm sorry. They laugh together. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm sorry, guys. Horse pauses. He touches Hosef's arms, hands, and his filthy hair. Hosef stops laughing. He keeps chewing, watching with a questioning look. I want to make sure you're truly alive. Hosef starts laughing again. He is seized with laughter. Are you? Hosef ventures in return. Horse offers an arm for Hosef to touch. I am. Gales of laughter. It's been a long time since Horse laughed. Then Horse realizes he just saw Hosef's photo as a child among Mila's belongings. At the other end of the tunnel. 55. Krista trudges with, with exhaustion towards the tunnel and thinks she hears men laughing. Bats swoop over her head and enter the tunnel ahead. She feels trepidation in what awaits her. She pauses, listening. Laughter. Then as the bats enter, silence. A swatting sound. Behind you. The voice is in German. Carefully now, she ventures forth from the brush, still carrying her canvas pack. She is seized by curiosity, but then backs away in fear. Krista's thoughts swirl about her. What if they're ghosts? The surreal past few days left her in, dis in disquiet, a sense of foreboding and anxiety. How much more must she interact with the dead? She listens to what sounds like men swatting at the bats, who laugh as if the war is over, or are their senses gone? Have they gone mad? Have they abandoned all hope for the safety of insanity? Was she a witness to Mila's last few days on the farm? Or did Mila truly change her mind and leave her at the station? Krista thinks of the basket and its moldy contents. She sits, now unsure of how prepared she is to investigate the tunnel like she did with the farm. She wonders if she should take a detour past the tunnel. More miles she doesn't need. She deliberates her options. Krista turns towards a row of trees, deciding to hide until the safety of the morning. Then another male voice issues from the tunnel. Snatches of conversation in German. The sound grabs her attention. This one, very familiar. More ghosts from the past. Why must you torment me? Krista weeps. Anger takes over her psyche. Thoughts of revenge against the Nazis for casting her away her family, destroying and leaving her to wander alone. Alone. To wander. Then a bark. Something is coming through the brush towards her. A fox breaks through the brush. Krista stands. A German shepherd follows, giving chase. Phoebe! Instantly, Krista's eyes widen. She recognizes the voice immediately. Her father. A man emerges from the tunnel looking out. Krista sees him. Speechless, she emerges from the brush. The man sees Krista. He is older, bedraggled, scruffy, exhausted. He reaches out his arms in shock, then joy. Papa? He dashes towards her as she meets him. He looks into her eyes, both hands on her shoulders. Is this real? Horse touches Krista's face, her dress, her arms. 
Papa, are you alive? Horse nods vigorously, give, giving into tears. Chris's knees give out. Please, let this be real. She cries as he kneels and holds her. Joseph emerges from the tunnel with joyous smile on his face. Phoebe returns with a rabbit in her jaws, joining the group. Yes, daughter, I am alive. We are alive. Laughter and tears. Holsef joins them, and they huddle with the dog. They are barely five miles from the border of Austria. 56. Holsef makes a fire within the shelter of trees in a small clearing a few yards from the train tunnel. It has been an eventful evening. The rabbit, which horse skin, is roasting on the fire. On the fire. A pot of hot water for tea is simmering. Three, ar three army mugs wait in line. Horse is making another spear, this time for both Krista and Josef. Krista emerges from the woods with armfuls of clover, their vegetable for the meal. Krista eyes Josef's bread cart. Krista plops the clover leaves near, near, near the simmering metal pot and approaches the cart. She runs her hands on the cart's edges, walking around it until she sees the leather-covered seat. There is no horse attached. It's truly my old horse. It's truly my old bread. It's truly not my old bread cart. I happened upon it. Krista turns to Hosef. The last time she saw him was when he was in his early teens. Lines on his face and under his eyes show he looks older than his 17 years. Where was it? At a train station in 43. Has it been a year? More? Someone in our platoon shot the driver and his son. Someone stole the horse. Crispa gaped. Which train station? Aye, aye. We were on patrol for some Jews who escaped. I think they were pretending to be German farmers. The former owners. I was told to take the cart. It held fruits and some veg. Which station? Horst approaches, placing his hands on his daughter's shoulders. Krista stands riveted, waiting. I think it was Hilders, near Oberweed. Josef observes Krista, now distraught. Why? Krista examines the leather seat of the cart. It is stained with what appears to have been blood. She walks around the cart. One side shows the wood stain with blood. I think I rode on this cart on the way up here. Horace ventured. With who? Mila. Horace looks back in shock. You couldn't have. Krista glances back. I did just a few days ago. I took the train to Oberweed and began walking to where we are now. She was with me, the man and the boy. Krista runs her hands over the stained wood. Josef exclaimed, that's impossible. Horse reaches to stop him. Josef, not yet. That's impossible, Krista. I've had this cart. I used it. To escape. Krista's eyes ball like saucers in shock. Horse reaches for Krista. No, Papa. We must find out what happened to her. Did she take the train after all? Josef explains, she must have gotten away. Only a man, a prisoner of war, and a young boy was with him. No girl. Krista dashes to collect her pack. Horse detains her. No, please, daughter. We will eat. Then tomorrow I will show you. Show me. Both of you. Show me what? Horse grapples with the words. Mila, where she died. 57. Where there was laughter, there are now tears. The sun rose later than usual as the leaves began falling, heralding the beginning of the autumn season. Krista places wild mums on Nila's grave, roughly piled, roughly piled up leaves and dirt that horse had put together in an effort to give the girl some respect. The skeleton still hangs above on a tree. The skull thankfully turned away. Phoebe has something in her mouth, which she, 
wished, wishing profits to horse. Krista sees it immediately, the embroidered handkerchief with the, with the pony flower on it. She clutches it to her breast. Then Josef sees his own photograph as a child next to Mila's notebook. A shiver runs through him. Josef pulls the cart like a horse without a halter while horse pushes from behind. They pile the older belongings in the cart, the dog walking ahead to forage to check for anyone ahead. Krista walks behind the cart, lost in her thoughts, looking occasionally behind her for anyone who might be following alive or dead. E-plug. Russia occupied the northern areas of Germany and was making their way south. By the fall of 1945, when the first of the Red Army arrived in Frankfurt and the surrounding little villages, Krista, her father, Horst, and Josef had crossed over to the little village of Tysendorf, northwest of Salzburg, Austria. They brought with them an, ex an exhausted Phoebe who, who foraged for food on behalf of her masters all the way to Austria. Krista had traveled almost 100 miles mostly by foot through forests to, to find her father. Horst walked for over five months by his own recollection, heading south while Krista heading north. They both, they both subsisted on clover, mushrooms, fifth, and small game when it was available. When the weather or fear of detection stood in their way, they both stopped for several days and weeks, hiding and foraging. Mila's ill-fated love for Josef saved his life when he, detected from, when he defected from his platoon, disguised as a fruit seller. Around the summer of 44, he re, as he recounted to Krista, he used the horse-drawn cart he found at the train station minutes after his platoon shot and killed both Edgar and Holzer in the ill-fated ride to sell the ill-fated ill ride to sell fruit and vegetables to Mila at the station. It was the same platoon that forced Mila into the into the cattle car, where she escaped hours later, only to plummet 75 feet to her death onto the forest floor. Mila and her hosts, Edgar and Holzer, were all dead by the time Krista entered the farmstead in the summer of 1945. Krista and her father immigrated to the United States on a ship that entered the harbor in New York City in 1949. Horst resumed his trade as, as a tailor in Philadelphia until his death. Krista eventually met and married a Frenchman. Krista never saw her mother again. She returned to Frankfurt, Germany, and after several visits discovered and found that she had a brother who had escaped imprisonment in Africa. They met for the first time in 1949, shortly before she and her father immigrated to the United States. Brother and sister again visited and gained closure before he passed away in 2019 of old age. At the time of this writing, Krista still lives in Pennsylvania and has a son, a daughter, and a grandson. She is 90 years old. And that... In this book, we have some different photographs of the actual people. And I'm going to go ahead and read about Anna Maria Manalo here so you guys can get a feel for who wrote the book. And uh, it's, it was a great book. Fantastic book. Fantastic read. Anna Maria Manalo is a practicing therapist and retired school counselor by profession. A former field investigator for MUFON, she placed in several competitions for supernatural and science fiction screenplays based on real cases. The Tulpa Effect, retitled From Within Me, placed number six in the top ten script in script Vance Dream Quest competition in 2012. The same screenplay was a quarterfinalist in the 2011 Page International Screenwriting Awards and third round finalist at the AAA Screenwriting Competition. 
supernatural thriller under Tangle Road. Play strongly considered at the Creative World Awards for the highly skilled use of subtext and handling of difficult subject matter. And the sci-fi screenplay Uncharted Darkness placed as a quarterfinalist at the prestigious Faded Awards competition and sci-fi thriller Anomaly placed as a finalist in the Writer's Place competition. Anna has adapted for the screen books by noted ufologist Philip Mantle and Paul Stonehill, whose working titles are High Strangeness excuse me, and Height 611. She has traveled to, to over 27 countries to date, collecting accounts of alien encounters and hauntings alike, which she compiled in her first book, Portal, A Lifetime Paranormal Experience, of Paranormal Experiences. She has guest starred over 45 podcasts, including Midnight in the Desert, Coast to Coast AM with Connie Willis, Darkness Radio with Dave Schrader, The Paracast, Howard Hughes, UK Radio, Late Night in the Midlands, among others. She starred in the second episode of UFOs Over Earth, featuring herself as Elsa Simon on the Discovery Channel in 2008. She lives in Pennsylvania. And so that ends The Way Through the Woods. Great book. Oh, my. Didn't see that ending coming either. Wow, wow, wow. So next week, we will have another book to start. And uh, let me get back on screen here. So next week, we will... Oh, wow, everybody's here. Wow, look at everybody. I didn't see how many you were here. See, I was reading. Uh, anyway, so next week, we'll have another book to read. Maybe we'll get another one of Anna's. Maybe, maybe we'll read Portal. Next week, get started on stuff. I have an idea of a book that might be kind of cool to read, so we'll see what I can do about it. But if not, maybe Anna Maria will let us read Portal because that would be kind of fun, you know, to, to read her other book. But uh, this was a great read, and um, it, it, it was it was fun. Tomorrow, uh, we're back on schedule, 6.30 p.m. Pacific for our usual show. And, and Bender will be our guest from Bender Family Paranormal here in Sacramento. And she has just done a spot for haunted hospitals because she uh, she grew up as a psychic and uh, and she also has works in hospitals and she's had experiences obviously or she wouldn't have been in a hospital so she's gonna be with us tomorrow at 6 30 p.m. Pacific. Anyway, if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated this show, share it with five with five of your enemies. We're equal opportunity here. I hate my allergies at California Haunts Radio. Please be sure, if you're watching from YouTube, to subscribe and uh, click on that little ghost that has the magnifying glass and the Sherlock Holmes hat. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. If you're uh, listening via podcast, keep downloading. We love these downloads, boy. You guys are doing really well, and I hope you you share the podcast with people that you know, too, to let them know that this this show is out there, right? Uh, Again, you see that thing running down the bottom? Trying to get through this and remember... (laughs) Uh, that's because uh, this is all um, funded by me, and I could always use a little help to pay the bills and keep the show on the air. So that's paypal.me at California Haunts, or you can go to Venmo and just type in California Haunts, and we're right there. But anyway, I want to thank you guys for coming and listening today. And it was a great book, it was a great read. We did five parts to this, and if you missed any of them, you can go back. Oh, you can go to YouTube and go back over and listen to uh, whatever part you want. Uh, like I said, it's divided into five different parts. But it was a wonderful read, and I want to I, I want to thank Anna Maria, with you know, with all my heart for doing this, and allowing us to read her book. And I really appreciate it. So I will see you guys tomorrow and uh, at six thirty p.m. usual time. And uh, have a nice rest of your weekend. <laughs>